Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Hying. Today's episode features an interview I recorded live with vocalist, composer, and bandleader Amirtha Kadambi on one of Indexical's recent Twitch live streams. Amirtha and I talked about the importance of collaboration in her work, her reticence to perform on live streams, her politics, and her hybrid approach to incorporating practices from different cultures in her music. Throughout the episode, you'll hear excerpts of songs by Kadambi's group Elder Ones, including Eat the Rich and Dance of the Subaltern. For clarity's sake, in our interview, we talk about a live video version of these songs. As usual, we'd love to hear from you if you have thoughts about the podcast. You can reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our handle is at an index of music. And I'm also available via email at madison at Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hello. <laughs> Hi. All right. I think we are live. Um, I hear, I just hear the words, oh no, oh no. <laughs> we will be live soon. If not, then this is, this is hello, hello. Yeah. This is what you're seeing. All right. I think we're good. Okay, great. Well, that was a great introduction uh, for a lot of the themes that we're going to be talking about today, which is uh, how awkward it is to be on live streams. Yes. Um, so, hi, Twitch stream. Uh, I'm Madison Hying here with Amirtha Kadambi, and I'm super excited to have Amirtha uh, here today. Um, we get to uh, watch some previously unreleased live footage of her group Elder Ones, and we're also going to talk about her music and her politics and life in general. So, hi, Amirtha, or Amirtha, sorry. <laughs> either way, either way is wrong, as I said before. Yeah. <laughs> My parents call me Amritha, but it's like uh, never been, it's never caught on because it's not how it's spelled. So it's kind of a bummer. But tough, tough what thing you to do. Yeah. Can you do yeah. that? So maybe just to kick things off, could you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about the kind of work you make? Yeah, um, I'm... Amirtha, Amirtha, or Amritha uh, Kadambi. I'm primarily a, an improvising vocalist and composer, um, but uh, I also, in my group, Elder Ones, I play the synthesizer and the harmonium, the Indian harmonium. Um, and I also play in many, many free improvising contexts. I play another group that I play very regular. I can hear Andrew crunching. <laughs> uh, Another great group I play regularly in is um, Mary Halverson's Code Girl, um, and which we actually were on tour in early March in Europe and ran home during that tour. So I can tell you what that was about. And then um, uh, recently been playing very regularly, or well, not you were. very recently, but I was playing regularly in a duo with Leah Bertucci. And we just put out a record recently. So those are kind of the main irons in the fire. But I do a lot of ad hoc free improvisation and play with lots and lots of different people. And I really miss um, those things. And, and New York, as, as maybe your viewers know, is like a real center for free improvised and experimental and um, kind of new music 
So we're missing our community a lot right now. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I guess that's a good enough segue. I think rather than talking about stuff, let's give everyone a bit of a taste for uh, the kind of music that you make and what you do. So Andrew, if you could uh, queue up Eat the Rich.
All right. <laughs> that was really something. <laughs> so, yes. Amrita, could you tell us a little bit about what we just watched? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so first I'll just give you the, the, the setting um, because it kind of, I, I got these videos just this in this past week and it was like very emotional for me to watch these live videos. One, just that I haven't seen since we performed, but like also of my band that I, I can't play with. I can see Matt Nelson and uh, the saxophonist in Sunset Park at a six foot distance uh, at, at least, but um, yeah, we none of us can play together anymore. Um, but this is from last May at a festival in Slovenia called Jazz Cirkno. And um, it it's just like one of those magical shows. Like, I like, can never forget it. And we think it was like one of our favorite times ever playing together. And we've been together for a while now. Um, and uh, yeah, we like traveled from Oslo like at four in the morning and then took two flights across Europe and ended up in Venice, Italy. And then like were driven through this insane mountain road at like a very risky high speed that was <laughs> a little, <laughs> little nerve wracking and and just like really hungry and tired and cranky and whiny and all of it. And then immediately had to sound check. And I think we got like a little cat nap in before we played. But then when we played, it was just one of these things where like, we just didn't give a shit. We were just like so fried <laughs> that we just, you know, like I'm like screaming and we're just going for it. And we always go for it. Like this is not a band that's like a 50% band. Like it's like a million percent band, but it, it's just was like, completely raw and then we played and we were like I feel like that was like one of our favorite sets we've ever played but we just hadn't seen it in in a year and and I sent it around to the band this week we all agree it, it is really yep, video it confirmation good. now that it was a fire show it was a fire <laughs> show and a fire hang and and this is yeah. maybe what it makes me think about is like afterwards we Hamid Drake played right after us and then we all hung out in the hotel lobby after and just like, I won't say what transpired in the hotel lobby. It was a deep, deep hang, but this is all part of this. Um, yeah. and, and then the piece is, is called Eat the Rich. I mean, there's so many directions to go in terms of this conversation, but I wrote this in, in like 2015. Um, maybe even 14, I started writing it. Um, and then, you know, this is on a record that came out in 2016. Um, no, 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 no. That's all wrong. It was, <laughs> I wrote it in, in the, at the end of 2016 for a record that came out in, God, I like, I have no idea. When it came out in 2019 from Untruth, this is Elder Ones. But the point being that I was feeling this way for a long time. Yeah, it was bubbling and, up to the surface. Yeah, and uh, it actually is like, so you guys are in Santa Cruz, and it was like very much inspired by being from the Silicon Valley and um, reading about like, just like this like kind of techno utopian fantasies. And, and look at look at where we are. We're on like Twitch. Like the, it's we're just in the, it. <laughs> we're in it. The ironies of all, they like really have yeah. to, to whole takeover. So um yeah, it was just like how much influence they have over our lives and political influence. And, and obviously, like, I'm not a fan of capitalism. So this is like a really a piece that tries to articulate that in the simplest, like I was saying, while the video is playing, like, I'm pretty heavy handed, like, I'm not trying to be <laughs> nuanced or subtle at all. Right. Um, 
So that's what the piece is about. But yeah. And where does that come from that like not wanting to be heavy handed? Is it just like the message is simple and clear so that hopefully it's effective? Or not wanting to be subtle? Um, Yeah. I mean, yeah, like essentially I was reading all this kind of like I was reading a combination of like a lot of post-colonial theory and then um, I was in this grad program at the time and and then uh, a lot of post-colonial theory intersects with like a lot of Marxist theory and then I was reading a lot of Marxist theory and like also just like looking at everything that was happening. It was like the thick of, it was like the campaign of Donald Trump was when I kind of started writing some of this music and then like his inauguration was when I really got into the writing mode of like the, the other three pieces on the record. And it was just like watching everything burn. And um, and yeah, that that was really informing me a lot. It was like reading people like Gayathri Spivak and uh, Deepesh uh, Chakrabarti and Homi Baba, these like post-colonial theorists from, um, from India and trying to like, they're, they use a really, really heavy academic language and it's really, and it's really great. Like, I, I love that writing and, and, but I was like, no, we need to be able to like take these ideas, which are so powerful, which really, really resonated and distill them to the most simple, like you could chant it at a protest, like what I call battle cries <laughs> and eat the rich or die starving. If you want to explain why this system doesn't work that's it. Like there's nothing else you need to know, you know? So, I mean, there are things that would be helpful also to know, but I, I, I wanted it to feel like that. And I wanted, I also like think there's something about screaming that to an audience, um, is like, I, I view my role as like, I'm going to scream for you because maybe it would be weird for you to just like scream out the window a la like network. But, um, and there's this feeling of like group catharsis, when you when elder ones performs and it's it's you with your voice but it is also the the whole the group as a whole absolutely i mean matt is like he looks like his head's gonna pop off i mean it's like <laughs> totally amazing absolutely. everybody and max is such a physical drummer and yeah. same with nick like such a like the way he yeah. plays the bass and and that's catharsis is the right word um it's like I do feel like it's a, I'm trying to provide a service. The service is not just like to make making you think about these ideas is really important, but it's also like release, like just, it's been an insane three years, let alone like what's happening now. It's, um, I feel like we need to kind of exercise the demons, exorcise the demons, let's say. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. And I, I feel like I've heard you or read about you described as a political activist or just an activist before. And I was just wondering, I don't know if that's something that you sort of ascribe to or feel an affinity to. And if so, like, do you feel like your music is the primary outlet for that? But it also seems like you do kind of other maybe organizing as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's like, I, I, I wouldn't use the word activist because I feel mm-hmm. like those are like the people who do that are like really on boots on the ground people and they're really, really doing the work. Um, but I, I try to, um, I try to activate people through musical endeavors primarily, but then every now and then that means like actually doing some organizing myself. So like in, in 2014, when there was, a, you know, uh, so m- much happening around Black Lives Matter, that movement and, and uh, people's awareness of police brutality. Montana Roberts had had organized um, 
Oh, I think I have the, well, this wasn't the event. This is the event I organized, <laughs> Yeah. which was um, hmm, Musicians Against Police Brutality. Nice. So this was at Silent Barn and that four, no, 15, I think. But um, I had sort of joined, like she was really busy. And so I like took, took up the mantle of that organizing and did some uh, events at Issue Project Room around that time and panels and discussions. And then and raised some money for one of the victims um, in families in New York and was able to like hand the money like directly to um, this, this woman. And, um, and then like, yeah, I, I, it's hard to call it activism necessarily, but um, I am like a, now an active member of the DSA. I do a lot of like oh, cool. phone banking and um, canvassing and things like that. Well, not, in-person canvassing now, but, um, I am like very politically active in my you are life. Active. It's more than just like your songs are about political topics. It's like, there is sort of like a follow through with like action and in, in your life. Yeah. Direct action is incredibly important to me. And, and I also like hope my, like the music can inspire direct action as well. Um, but, but yeah, it's, a. Uh, like right now I, within our own community, like I'm really interested in like organizing in terms of us as a, a workforce as a labor organization i don't know you know i know like um, mark rabot has been working on that for a long time in our community and um i started an open letter campaign when this all started to get uh at least like a percentage of artist fees for people whose gigs were canceled um because of this and that to me is part of like organizing within within our community um as a as a workforce because we are like we're, you know, we're, we're a weird type of laborer, but, yeah. um, we're definitely like gig economy workers, you know? Absolutely. So that was like one way I channeled some of my energy at the beginning of the quarantine. Um, totally. Could you talk a little bit more about that letter that you wrote and kind of the, what's happened as a result of it or the, maybe some yeah. around it? Well, basically what happened was I, I was, I was in Europe, um, when all of this was going down with Mary Halverson's band and, um, yeah, so we were mid tour and I was supposed to be in Europe for three weeks. I was, I was supposed to finish the tour with Mary and then go on to do a duo tour with Leah Bertucci. So this is like tens of gigs. I mean, right. it was like almost 20, like 20 shows, wow. um, all together. And then same thing when I got back, I was supposed to, I was supposed to come to California. I was like, I had so many things lined up. Um, and so we're talking about a lot of money. Um, right. and, and obviously like I'm talking to everybody on tour and we're all, it's a, it's a lot of money for all of us. Um, so like when we're in Europe on this tour, we're getting gigs canceled while we're there. So we don't even know where our return flights are going to be from. And like, it's just like the situation is unfolding as it's happening and we're starting to get other gig cancellations. And I remember we were in Spain. We, we call it the last supper. We had like our final meal of tour and then, um, went back to the hotel room at like two in the morning. And then by like, 2.30, we were getting texts from like everyone we knew in the States being like, where are you guys? When are you, are you going to be able to get home? And, and it's the Trump travel ban yeah. address was happening. And it was so vague and so unclear. Um, luckily, we all, we made it, we made it in before the deadline. And we even, Maria Grand is a Swiss national. So we were freaking out. It was very oh, right. stressful. Like these things have impact, you know, like totally. we know we know that, but it was, it was something really eye opening to be in a situation like that when he made one of these ridiculous decrees and be Absolutely. like Im immediately directly affected. 
And then, so when I got home, it was like, oh my God, like that's all of our work for months. I mean, now I'm, it looks like my gigs are being canceled through almost through the fall. Oh my gosh. so I think many of us, you know, obviously are like trying to apply for unemployment. Some of us have gotten the $1,200 stimulus, but now there's a thing, if you're even married to an immigrant, you can't get the, the that check. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah. And so we know we don't trust our government and we don't right. trust them to make decisions that are in our benefit. Um, so I was like, what's the fastest way to get money in people's pockets who generally are kind of living gig to gig? Right. And... I just had started asking presenters about uh, doing like a deposit on a reschedule. I mean, and this yeah. was actually at a time when it seemed like rescheduling could maybe happen by the fall. Right. So it seemed a little more like now it it's, I think, turnaround. now I think it's a little fuzzier, but um, some venues are offered that up on their own. Like some of the venues That's in Europe great. just paid the full fees and were like, you know, if this doesn't happen till next year, we'll just like uh, try to get the money again and just pay you a new fee. Um, and it wasn't just for me. Like I've heard now lots of people, um, the idea is it was a public letter, open letter, you know, there's like 400 plus signatures of not just artists, but also presenters and, and venues and, and people on the production side. Uh, and it's basically for ethical cancellation. So it's like, if you're, if you're, you're canceling and you're expecting a reschedule, it's worth something to the musician to hold that, that future date, date right. maybe. Um, but it's complicated because I don't know, you know, then when the tour comes back around, will we even be able to do it? I don't know, you know. Right. Um, so it's more like good faith. We're all going to try our best to make the gig happen right. eventually. And it, it gets people money that they may desperately need right now. And, um, it was something. It did something, and it yeah. it produced. Uh, at least it was like all of us taking uh, a stand in solidarity and just showing support for each other. And it was and wasn't not meant to be antagonistic towards the presenters either. It was like we are all in a bad situation. Right. So that was kind of the idea. Yeah, and I think that is a powerful idea that it is like this kind of mutual good faith between artists and presenters and organizations, all of everyone together. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're all, I mean, we are all going to be so affected after this happens. Like I do really worry about like in terms of venues, the presenters and and the whole infrastructure of our entire thing that we do, the touring infrastructure, the, the, the presenters, the the funders, like everything, if how, and if this is going to continue, I think some will not survive. Some artists will like, be going back to a desk job that they haven't worked in years, you know, I mean, really, truly, it's, it's going to be different. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how we're going to adjust after, but we kind of have to take it a kind of a little bit a day at a time at the moment. Totally. There's no other way because there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess that kind of leads um, to the next point of uh, topic. Anyways. um, (laughs) What is words? (laughs) Who knows? Um, But you've talked quite a bit and and we were really uh, excited to talk about just some of the, now that we've shifted into social distancing and quarantine of doing live streams like we're on right now and just some of the weirdness of 
doing a live stream, of watching a live stream. I'm sure people in the chat are feeling this as well, <laughs> the people watching. Um, so what are your thoughts about live streams and this kind of current situation we find ourselves in? Yeah. So, well, if you go to my Facebook page, the whole thing has been unfolding this week where I, I did a live stream on Monday for Silk Road Ensemble. Um, and I like, I have solo material. It's not really like the thing that I really feel like I like playing in bands and in a group. And I've, I've been wanting to work more on my solo material, but it's not really at a point where I like feel great about it. And so there's lots of reasons why I might not have felt great about this, but I, I noticed a couple things. I've done two live streams. I did one with um, the ESS, the quarantine concerts, which is a great, it's a great like initiative. Like I'm not, totally. um, I'm grateful that people are doing this, that you guys are doing this. Um, and then the second one was this thing with Silk Road. And it was just like, both times I felt insane anxiety, like, um, like, performance anxiety, I guess, which I've never, honestly, I'm not like trying to be, you know, have bravado about this. I've never have, I've never had that. I I've been performing like since I can remember. So it sort of was really weird. So I had that. And then I remember after the first one I did, it was like, I finished and then I just like closed my computer and like cooked dinner. It was like so weird. And there was no interaction with people. And, um, it was, it, it, the same thing with this live stream. It was like, I, I like it just, it happened. And then I had to go about the rest of my day. I had to teach them lessons. And, and it was like, you know, usually like there's an adrenaline from a performance and you finish and then it has somewhere to go right. through the hang, through the conversations with people. Um, but there were so many elements missing. There was right. one, like a lot of people made some great points on, on the thread um, on Facebook, but it's this idea of like, you work your whole life as a musician to like know what it's like when you make a sound and put it into the room and know how it affects, like how it falls on someone's ears and how it affects an audience and how to deal with like a specific room and all this stuff. And then for that to not be there and then to also not know who is watching, um, especially in a music that has such a tight knit community so much as like you like really interact with the audience. Um, and just like, I mean, uh, for comparison, like that video from this, the elder ones from Jazz Cirkno, I mean, like, wh whoa, like there's obviously something about the audience being there. That's really, really, really important. They were responding. They were like, eat the rich. Like people were like <laughs> screaming from the audience. You better believe that makes us like give more, you know? Right. And, and then same with the interaction between musicians. It's just like, um, and, and in terms of venues, like, I'm sorry, my apartment is not like a venue that I would prefer to perform in. It's right. not a good venue. <laughs> it has no vibe. It has zero vibe. There's no lighting, oh. you know, it's like yeah. it in terms of performing. And so there's, but even beyond that, those are kind of obvious, right? Like, right. I think, I think those are really obvious things of why it would feel weird. Um, the disembodiment, the whole, the whole thing, the acoustic, uh, the, the psychoacoustic thing, it's like really important. But beyond that, I think there's like some things for me that have been like a little disturbing. Like one is I've already been very begrudging about promoting work on Facebook and Instagram and that we're like relying on these, these, you know, corporations to, um, just mm -hmm. get our the word out about concerts. So that's already been an uphill battle for years for me personally. And now we're turning over 
everything to these. I don't know who who owns Twitch. Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Um, Some someone in the chat will tell us. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> but but it's like I think it's like anybody who owns Twitch, Amazon, Amazon. Oh my God! Like yeah, I want to die. Like I'm so upset about that. I, oh, I, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. I mean, I I I hate I hate Amazon. Wow. I don't. I, you know, I don't use it. And it's like it's like Amazon, Facebook, like in it, Facebook owns Google, Instagram, Apple. And now this is our venue. These are our venues. Like, you know, and so it makes me think about a lot beyond just like the weirdness and the awkwardness of the performing. It's like, these are the, the, the techno surveillance state. And we're like, this is our new venue. And I'm like, this is eat the rich and I'm going to perform. And that's why I like would rat. I don't know. It's so, it's so complicated. And then beyond that, like, I think I have some just deep kind of philosophical misgivings about like, uh, one for one thing, I don't think all music translates great to a live stream. Totally. And I think um, if anything, like maybe it would be important to almost like maybe tailor what you're doing to the live stream. And I don't right. really think what I do really translates that great. So sure. um, either I would have to like really work on creating something kind of unique and, you know, maybe it doesn't have to just be like me playing. Maybe it could be like crazy camera. I don't know. Like some, like maybe there would have to be something else totally. unique about it that yeah. you would not get from a live performance. So like I was reading, Absolutely. Um, have you read, I, I was rereading this Walter Benjamin. It's like a pretty like uh, ubiquitous culture studies essay called, um, I think it's called, uh, art in the age of mechanical reproduction from 1932 Mm -hmm. and he talks yeah classic essay and he talks about you know like I mean he talks about many things but he talks about ritual as being like a real thing that's really lost in Mm -hmm. film and photography um and recorded you know like I was thinking about like Sousa's like tensions with recorded music and the beginning of recorded music and eventually the album and the recording became much more than a document um, it became its own thing. But in the beginning, it was kind of just like a reproduction of what you would have if, if you were seeing something live. Um, yeah. And maybe we're all happy now with like what happened to the album, or we're not because then it went to streaming and now right. we're really unhappy with where the album <laughs> went. But like, it did have an impact. People stopped playing instruments in their homes. Sure, yeah. Like the piano went by, went to the wayside in everyone's houses like it had an effect and and like i actually think we should start thinking about some of the implications of all of this you know we all just like i i'm not criticizing anyone because i know we all were like oh my god we can't perform this is what we live for what are we waking up for every day let's just move the whole thing on to the internet but what i am interested in at the moment is taking a, a step back taking a breather and being like what does this mean like for those first actors that had to act to the camera for film i'm sure they were thinking about like what does this mean now um and what will it mean for us like some of these live streams are free some of them you have to pay for like so how do you monetize something when you can just get it for free all over the internet you know yeah so there's a lot of things that i would like to interrogate myself before just like throwing myself at the mercy of the internet, these corporations, the anonymous viewer. Uh, I love, I love, I love my audience. Like, I'm just g- yeah. grateful to even have one at all. But it's uh, 
It's a lot of questions I have yeah. about it. And it's stuff that we at Index Goal have been thinking about a lot. And and we I think I really agree that it's like, how do we find, I mean, obviously in the short term, and we're trying to have a diversity of different kinds of content, but I do agree that the ideal is sort of like, what are types of music or art that are like, maybe I suited to this kind of medium in a way that it's not just like something that was like a live performance that now we're just right. doing online, you know? So actually that's why I'm really excited about the next set Tamara Duplantis, um, because her games are these like really visual interactive sound games. Um, but there is this kind of like component that sort of like fits in really cool with the sort of video game aspect of Twitch. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, we're trying to get there, but it's a, a long road. And I see in the comments that she's like, oh, I have a lot of thoughts about this. So we'll get to talk about that. Later. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. I just, you know, I'm like, I'm like a very analog, like, I like the right. sound vibrating in the room. Like, that's like, I'm a vocalist, like, I'm all about feeling like the physical vibration. And, um, and so like, I don't think what I do is great on the internet. And like, I, I haven't I'm sorry, I have not had time in quarantine to like get my home sure. studio set up like I, I, I would like to, but there's some financial concerns right now. But sure. if I had like a, maybe a, a better mic and a mic for my harmonium and maybe, but even then I'm like, do I want to spend this time that I have right now trying to figure out how to make my music work for live stream or can I just like do my thing, read my books, listen to music, uh, practice. I'm learning alto saxophone right oh, now. Nice. So that's fun. Um, and working on like studying Carnatic South Indian music again. And just like take, take the time to do the, in, the inner work. Yeah. Um, when we can't do this kind of more expressive, like outward expression, right. go deep inside. And then when it's time to come out, I'll, I'll come out. I mean, maybe, and maybe I'll, in the meantime, I'll enjoy other people's live streams. I don't know. I haven't decided like yeah. definitively, but I'm sure. really trying yeah. to think about this um, for myself and yeah. why it and makes it, me feel so terrible. <laughs> right. And if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. There's no sense in trying to force it. And, and for me, it's kind of nice because it's given us this excuse to watch that awesome video and just chat online well right so I like kind of turned you guys down essentially that's what and in it, the initial conversation was like will you perform live and I was like no <laughs> I won't like, I mean okay cool well let's figure something else out <laughs> and I appreciate that yeah, yeah like so it was like at the same time th this festival had this this video they were like just starting to sift through it and I was like this is perfect timing so you know it it is it is cool it gives it a different um there's there's different ways to deal with it and the, and yeah it's like you know maybe I would just post a link to the video but I think it's kind of cool to actually it's like, great to be able to have this conversation about it and maybe to just kind of circle back to to the performing it seems to me like one thing I really wanted to ask you about was collaboration because it mm -hmm. seems like a lot of the projects that you do like you said it's it's in the context of a group or a band it's it's collaborative and it kind of reminded me of um, our artist in residence last year Carmina Escobar um, oh yeah she told me this great story about being at a workshop that was like multidisciplinary. Um, and there was a percussionist there named Le Kuan In. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I know Karina. Um, 
Yeah. Um, and basically the, what she talks about is, you know, for some people that improvise together, it's not necessarily about practicing together. It's not necessarily about those times when you got the, the music in front of you and you're playing together. It's about all those times when you have dinner together or you're hanging out before yeah. the show or you're in the car together. And just that being together um, is kind of what translates into the music and translates into that coherence. And so I wonder if that's kind of what you're responding to as well. Um, Absolutely. Like, that's really important to your music. 1000%. I mean, um, Robert Ashley, who I had uh, really the, the great, great honor of getting to know and, and work with, like talked all the time about music as a social phenomenon. And that's why like when he made his band, it and why as a new music composer he didn't just have a bunch of random ensembles playing his music was because he was like i want these people they're right. my friends we like eat together we travel together like we tour that's so the point of a tour is not just to go from one city to the next i think what makes the whole thing deep is like that whole miserable travel day that we had from Oslo to Circano and then playing this concert, that's all part of it. And then talking to him, you know, in the lobby with Hamid after, I mean, that was like very much a part of, of the whole thing. And I would do it, by the way, I would do that travel day every day for, for the next year, if I could be playing live music yeah. right now. Yeah. And yeah. so maybe you could just talk too about how that kind of translates to your compositional process. Cause it does seem like Robert Ashley is a really apt comparison that like, you know, he sometimes gave a skeleton or a structure, but then the performers had a lot of agency and it seems like you've struck a really interesting balance with that with elder ones. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like he's talked about so much in new music, you wouldn't like see an obvious comparison, but he actually talked about his music. Like um, he, he, looked at people like Duke Ellington and Count Basie as the models for how he was a composer, that he was a band, he called himself more like a band leader. Um, <laughs> and I mean, he was a composer obviously, but so was Duke Ellington. They were band leaders sure. and composers. Yeah. Um, yeah, like for me, like those models like him or, or uh, in creative music, uh, like people like the ACM or, or, or even like um, a lot of models of, of certain types of rock bands or where, yeah, maybe there's like, um, a composer, but uh, it's really important who those individuals in the, in the band are. You can't just replace them. And we've had two different bass players, but they brought very, very different kind of uh, approach to the music. And so, yeah, when I'm writing, uh, especially in the second record and From On Truth, like the first record, Holy Science, it was definitely there. It was Elder Ones was my first band um, of mine, of my music, mm -hmm. of my own. I've been in collaborative bands where like, it's like more group writing and everybody's like right. working together. But um, this is like, it is my music. Like I am the one conceiving the ideas, but then I try to leave a lot of room and um, I don't write a ton of music. Like, I mean, I should have like brought some, I have some charts somewhere, but it's like, they're kind of pretty skeletal, you know, it's not, it's not a ton of material. It's things that can cells that can like repeat over and over again. You can mm -hmm. keep mining them. So in and that, is it more like a melody or a rhythm or something like that, or it's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's yeah. like um, often there's like a melodic idea and like a counterpoint, either a baseline mm -hmm. or something chordal. But generally, I, I don't write a lot of like harmony-based music. Right. It's more um, polyphony, and um, I'll like start from there. And I, I often write a baseline first because it's like, I just like cyclically like improvise over whatever the, the cycle or the pattern is. And that baseline is usually pretty rhythmic and has something very 
you know, and then the drummer Max will kind of from that sort of create his drum part. And Matt, sometimes I write him parts like to harmonize with me or do something, but so sometimes it's just like double my part or not, or double the bass part or not, or whatever, you know, right. it's, it really varies. Or like, sometimes I have a synthesizer part that has like, yeah, specific harmonies or different line. Right. So I'll write, I write like a, a few lines and sometimes the rhythm is a big thing for me. So like often like the time signatures are very prescribed or it's just like, this is the groove it's in seven or right. it go then it goes to 11. And I'm like, I, I really, really enjoy that. But um, it's pretty open. Like it's like open repeats. I don't know when this is going to end um, or, you know, I mean, and, and I've worked with composers like that too. Like, I mean, in Mary Halver, it's actually, it's interesting because I know what it's like to be on the other side. That's the yeah. nice thing about being a composer who is a performer is you really, you're doing both things all the time. So like in Mary's band, there's definitely way more prescribed material. There's way, way more kind of like specifically written parts, but she, for, in her music, she'll like have a space where it's like, okay, this is your solo. Or like with my melodies, she's like, you, they repeat and you embellish them or do whatever you want within those with my music I it's like even a little more um loose in that sense but yeah I'm I'm interested in the collaboration and that's why like yeah. solo has never really been something that's so interesting to me right I I want to I want to like get there I'm not I feel almost like it's advanced or something <laughs> like I'm not there yet <laughs> I, I know the opposite it's like easy to, you know, for someone to just not have to consider someone else and to just think about themselves. So I think it's kind of interesting and cool that you have the opposite problem. <laughs> yeah, I guess as an improviser, it seems so much harder to generate all yeah. the ideas by yourself. Um, but I think I don't remember who said it. Maybe it was maybe it was Roscoe Mitchell or oh, Evan Parker. I don't remember. Um, somebody told me where they were like, you know, solo is the ultimate like task for an improviser like maybe it was Anthony maybe it was Anthony Braxton I don't know um where it's like the ultimate thing like you really yeah. it's like all just your ideas and and actually that that will teach you so much if you if you play solo and so I I've done it on and off but maybe quarantine will be a time where I can explore that um like maybe said, not you're so reading much and going inward and focusing on yeah. yourself and some of these traditions so yeah maybe some some solo voice will come out of that yeah yeah and uh i have like a couple like i used to work with this loop pedal and i like put it it's literally like it's like taped in a box under my bed because i like hated doing it but <laughs> i was like hey, i'll check that out again or maybe yeah. i'll order some other pedals or i don't know i mean um We'll see. I'm trying. I think it's important for all of us. And I don't know if anyone needs to hear this out there. Um, but I have to repeat to myself that quarantine is not an artist residency. And if you feel like you are supposed to be producing like some monumental work in this period, like I think that it might be unhealthy, at least for me, that was not a good way of thinking about it. Um, you know, I'm for me, I'm just kind of thinking like, okay, if something comes to me, I'll start working on it, but I'm trying not to put pressure on it. So I practice and just, I'm trying to absorb as much as possible. I'm going to watch really, really good movies. I'm going to, you know, like I, I'm watching. Seems Satya like you're cooking a lot. Ray, cooking a lot. Which is great. Um, and then if it strikes me, I'm like journaling a lot and like free writing a lot and just 
you know, something might happen, but if it doesn't, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, we do have a few minutes left. And before we completely run out of time, I just want to throw it out there to all you listening. If you have any questions for Mirtha to toss it in the Uh, chat and I'll do what I can to, you know, give you a question or two from the, from the audience. Um, Cool. Yeah. And I, I can stick around for, I mean, a few however. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, Dinner is done, actually. It's already cooked. Oh, nice. I'm I'm a little (laughs) more relaxed. (laughs) That was one of my questions. I was like, so with quarantine, has this been just like an opportunity for you to cook any new things? Like maybe something that you wouldn't have taken the time to do before? Oh, I've just, I've been insane. Well, no, but I'm never home. So I'm always on the road. So like I've been making insane food. I, 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 I like, if I am craving something, I'm just like, I have to figure out how to cook it. And so... Yeah, I've been doing that. Okay, we got fun. a question. What's for dinner tonight? Is uh, is like a Tuscan kale and white bean stew. Ooh. Um, but that was sort of a throw together. But yeah. uh, <laughs> it's good to have con- <laughs> paella and fun. Tons of Indian food. Wow. I'm making dosas tomorrow. I just like I I just like if I crave it, I have to figure out how to figure make out how to make it. it. So it's been That's fun. That's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah, cooking is like in the beginning of the quarantine was the only thing I even had the energy to do. So yeah. it's been a slow build from there. I can totally relate to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you feel like you're regaining some of your energy and some like control over anxiety and th- things like that? Yeah, it's a process. I mean, I read yeah. an interesting piece of, that was kind of geared towards academics of like, you know, a, a case against productivity in quarantine or something. And yeah. she she was like a wartime, like someone who's studied and been in war zones a lot. And she talks about this idea of like, you know, the first priority in the beginning of a conflict like that, where it, like this is not war, but where it stops life as you knew it. Um is just to like take care of yourself and the people around you and that's it and that's all. And then she she talks about this idea of like the higher level co- complex like intellectual endeavors those things they will come. But it's like down the line and if you don't do this work now of processing like they won't come. You like you kind yeah. of have to really take the this work seriously first and just take care of of yourself and um and I have felt like I'm teaching a lot online, like voice lessons, and I've felt like I have more energy and capacity to do work. And um, but it was really in the beginning, I could barely do a thing, and I'm still like way under my productivity. Like I was pretty busy and insane. And actually, it's like kind of made me think, like, how did we even do all that before? Totally. <laughs> like it's psychotic what we, <laughs> the kind of lives we lead. So like it's good to have a moment. I'm not like happy about it, but I'll take it, I guess we have to. Yeah. And maybe along those lines, just as a way to kind of, uh, leave the conversation and maybe also get us into, um, dance of the subaltern, which is, I think the video that we'll play, um, once we're done. Um, I listened back to a, an interview that you recorded with um, Keshav Batish, who lives in Santa mm-hmm. Cruz. Um, and you guys talked at, um, Stanford. Um, 
And in the conversation, you kind of talked about your musical practice as sort of a spiritual practice. Um, and to me, it seems like just from listening to um, Elder Ones, it seems like you're really doing, like you were kind of talking about earlier, like you're proclaiming a lot of things that like other people might not be able to proclaim in this like kind of cathartic way. And I was just wondering um, if you think about your music as something that kind of reclaims something or that restores something. Um, or maybe recenters things. Yeah, I mean, personally, like spiritually and personally, for me, it's like uh, kind of a process of. Uh, I guess I've been thinking about this process more in the term uh, decolonization, like that. I'm kind really? of like have gone through this process of decolonizing my myself. So one of the other pieces on the record is called "Decolonize the Mind." Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, like you know. My parents were actually born after um, the partition and, and independence in India, just after. Um, and I didn't have a lot of connection. My grandparents were in India and died when I was pretty young, so I didn't have a lot of connection to that generation. So I've had to kind of go back and do the work of researching sort of the real, like, impact um, of colonialism in India, but then just the whole idea of the power structure of it and how it's like, we're not really post-colonial, like we're still in it. And in terms of my education as a vocalist and um, an artist, it's like been entirely Eurocentric. And I, I studied classical music in college and, and in grad school. And then, but I had always been singing Indian devotional music and dancing Indian classical dance and, um, but then once I went through the formal rigorous like training as a musician in this Western classical thing and then came into a music scene that was like more properly, I guess you would say the new music scene in New York, I was like, man, this doesn't, none of this feels right to me. Like, I don't feel like myself. I don't see anyone like me in the audience or, or there was like no diversity in, in like the, my collaborators or performers. And it was just like, I mean, and that was at the same time that I started grad school in New York and read George Lewis's Power Stronger Than Itself. And it reminded me, and they were like, I mean, Art Ensemble of Chicago was like, part of it was like the Afrocentrism was like also a process of decolonization. Totally. And so that's kind of prompted me really to go to my roots and and it's not just my roots in music but like in terms of hindu philosophy and spirituality mm -hmm. and the music and really dig into that and sort of as a way of finding. i mean that's really typical i think for a lot of yeah. um for like second generation folks so mm -hmm. first i'm first generation <laughs> um where you are you go to your your roots to kind of tell you something about yourself and it doesn't mean that it's all, all the other stuff it doesn't mean Luigi Nono is not important to me he like <laughs> definitely very much is but it was starting to like really um engulf like my psyche in a way that I had to kind of deprogram so was yeah it like dance mm -hmm. you're kind of dance, Carnatic dance and devotional singing were separate from this kind of like operatic training, new music. And then at some point you were able to kind of like merge them or is it, was it, was, it different yeah. than that? No, it was totally compartmentalized. Like growing up in America as a, as a child of immigrants, like you compartmentalize so much that you're doing it in for yourself within yourself you're not just doing so i like go to school and it's like assimilation america time right. like here we go and then i'm like at home and i'm in my community or my our religious like activities and 
you, you do that so much that you do it in yourself and you're like mm -hmm. this dual, it's kind of like the Du Bois um, uh, double consciousness idea. Like you're really like these two people right. and it actually is a process. Like as you get older, I I've talked to many musicians and, and friends and people who have this type of identity where like you start to realize that and you're like, Oh my God. And, and it's a right. slow process of sort of bridging that and then decolonizing kind of in the larger sense of like, I was like looking at my bookshelf and I was like, I'm reading Dostoevsky right now, actually. So that's like the first white male author I've read in a really long time yeah. because I went through this process with my bookcase. I was like, okay, no, like I need to start reading other things, like going back to other, not just Indian authors, but like, you know, really important black American um, theorists and all kinds of things of just like, we need to undo some of this stuff. Um, and it's really, and it's really, really, really connected to issues in terms of capitalism. So, uh, the first corporation was were these like these trading companies, the Dutch right. East India Company, and things like this. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. part of that process was like finding my roots, and that led me to figure out what my voice was as a musician. And was that process of decompartmentalizing? Is that where this concept of hybridity comes in? Yeah, yeah, it's like really recognizing that. I mean, that's like the homie baba, like third space idea. Like, I, I think there's more than three spaces. I think there's like yeah. several spaces because there's like the internet intersection of like white American culture and like my Indian culture roots, and maybe that creates a space. But there's also the intersection of like I'm playing music that is like historically like Black American you know, coming out of the free jazz, that's like a whole other cultural interaction that we have like a million of these. So I think there's a lot of um, streams, but it's yeah. hy hybrid is absolutely like, you know, if some, maybe somebody wants to call elder ones fusion music, I kind of like would rather call it hybrid music or something. I don't know. I don't even like, it. it's like, there's no good ways to talk sure. about any of this, but. Hybrid does seem useful rather than like, yeah, fusion or like multicultural, because it, there's, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's not just like, let me take this, or let me take this, or let right. me just do this. No, it's not really that simple. It's like, oh, I like, yeah, I grew up listening to Black Sabbath and Lauren Hill and the Beastie Boys and like, you know, West Coast rap and like all this stuff and punk and then I like went to study classical music and that had a huge impact on me, early music and contemporary classical music in the avant-garde and and was simultaneously obsessed with Coltrane and Alice Coltrane and free jazz and like Cecil Taylor is how I came into being interested in imp free improvisation like when I was in college so it, it's all there it, it, and it's it is to me it's not a self-conscious process of like I'm gonna put this together and this together it's like almost like you just go deep and investigate and investigate and then kind of let it out and it's going to be hybrid. There's no way it's not right. going to be, you know? Yeah. Okay. Last question. This is from the chat. Um, so someone said, um, do you find parallels or maybe even a Venn diagram in your improvising with elder ones and your studying of Carnatic music? Um, I mean, I, uh, I think any, any input you put in it, like, especially if you practice something, it just kind of comes out, you know? Um, so in terms of improvising, absolutely. Like, it's just like, I'm doing tons of Carnotic vocal exercises, especially since 2017, um, more intensively, but I've been studying it formally uh, on and off for the past, like about 10 years. But then because of my dance teacher actually commented on my Facebook, cause I was like saying, I'm, oh, I'm learning this ragam um, 
through Skype with my teacher. I'm working with him every week, my guru in India. Um, and she was like, oh, you do you remember you danced you danced a, a Jati Swaram in that Ragam Kalyani? And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, I know it. Like, <laughs> I know it. And she sent me, she was like, remember this was the piece. And because and that dance is... Um, very deeply connected to Carnatic music. I mean, it's like, that's the accompaniment is Carnatic music is the accompaniment for that dance. So it's just like, for one, it's just deeply in there. And whether I deeply embodied. Yeah. Whether I'm asking for it to come out or not like that, that in eat the rich, the like, that's what the dance teacher says for the steps. But it's also how you learn rhythms as a percussionist in Carnatic music. And it's also what the, the drummers will, in, in tone too so it's like I learned it through my feet it's in there it's in there like it's not going but then yeah like when I started more intensively studying it um it it would come in like that section of eat the rich is a, is sort of like a very bastardization of this idea of corvée which is like the an ensemble sort of coming out of an improvisation to some very very unison pattern mm -hmm. um and that is like kind of additive and subtractive. And so mm -hmm. some of it is conscious. Like I was like, oh, I like that idea. I wonder like if I could do something. But I don't think when you hear it, it's like, oh, that just sounds like that thing they do. <laughs> but it, like, it does have an impact. It like really stands out and like is pretty like for the, at least for me as an audience member, it's like a really visceral, like I just want to move at that point. And I, you're, I got so locked in when you guys were doing it live to just like, oh, awesome. oh yeah, you know, so I feel like it maybe has some of that, that impact. That's great. Yeah. That's like, it's a banger. <laughs> as my yeah, cousin, it's a banger, my cousin yeah. said, he's like, that's a banger. Like, as oh, the wow. kids say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So then, uh, maybe to leave it, we're going to play, um, dance of the subaltern. I don't know if you have anything you want to say about it or if you just want to leave it here. I'll just say that, yeah, the subaltern refers to kind of the global subaltern. So like oppressed, oppressed peoples all over the world. So it's, it's like, a it's supposed to be kind of a liberatory, uh, celebratory dance um, and then I guess a I guess I'm supposed to make a plug right so um, the oh, last yeah. thing I'll say is that this record from Untruth is on Northern Spy and there's the um, band camp no fee day coming up on May 1st mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's also the other more recent record that um, came out this year with or the end of last year with me and Leah Bertucci called Phase Eclipse, which is voice and reel-to-reel -reel analog tape machine. And our tape machine is in Berlin because I had to oh, leave no. it in Europe because I couldn't go back to get it. I know, it's very sad. I'm kind of bummed um, you didn't get to ask about it, but I, I won't take up more of your time. That can be for it, next time. <laughs> for next time, but that's yeah. another record that we're really proud of, and um, everything is available on Bandcamp. And, um, awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Amirtha, for talking to me and for hanging out with us on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for having me, and um, I hope everybody enjoys the the Elder Ones video. And I'll just I'll hop on the chat now and say hey. Yeah. <laughs>